Welcome everyone to the Robert Reinhold Merritt Memorial Lecture. My name is James Grant and I'm a tutorial fellow here at Exeter College. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the college and, into, and to introduce you to our speaker this evening. The Merritt Memorial Lectures began in 1947 and are held each year at Exeter College in association with the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology in memory of R.R. R. Merritt, Rector of Exeter College from 1928 to 1943. Rector Merritt was a distinguished anthropologist of religion, and the anthropology lectures held in his honor have often been given by some of the world's leading figures in the anthropology of religion. And that tradition continues this year. We're delighted to have Birgit Meyer, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Utrecht, as our 2014 Merritt Lecturer. Professor Meyer has been one of the most innovative scholars of African religions over the last 25 years. As a student of Johannes Fabian in the 1980s, she started her career with a focus on Pentecostalism in Africa, when the phenomenon was still relatively new in Africa and in anthropology, and published an influential monograph entitled Translating the Devil, about the ways in which Pentecostalism generated notions of the devil in Ghana. With this book and further articles on Pentecostalism, she established herself as a major figure in debates about the innovation that this form of religion introduces in African settings, in terms of notions of the self, temporal ruptures, new imagery, the transformation of gender roles and expectations, and in debates regarding what later would become known as the anthropology of Christianity, a notion of which she is now quite critical. Over time, she has come to focus on notions of materiality, mediation, and images, and she has been the editor of the prestigious journal Material Religion for, se for several years. Together with David Morgan and Hans Belting, to mention only her closest collaborators on both sides of the Atlantic, she is one of the most influential theoreticians on the relationship between image and religion in the contemporary religious studies landscape. Professor Meyer is also one of the leading figures in the anthropology of media and religion. In 2010, she edited a volume entitled Aesthetic Formations, Media, Religion, and the Senses. And in her most recent work, she has focused on the relationship between emotions and images, coining the now influential concept of sensational images, and developing a fresh anthropological approach to the study of imagination and creativity. All these topics are the subject of her forthcoming book, Sensational Movies, Video, Vision, and Christianity in Ghana which graduate students in the School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography will have the privilege of discussing with her in a masterclass tomorrow. Professor Meyer's other current interests include the crossover between Christianity and Islam in Africa, the anthropology of prayer, the politics of cultural heritage, the poetics of world-making, and the Black Atlantic, especially Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Brazilian connections. She has been involved in many research projects on each of these topics, and she is currently involved in a HERA project Currents of Faith, Places of History, together with Ramon Saro from the School of Anthropology, who's with us this evening. Her lecture today is entitled, How to Capture the Wow, Awe and the Study of Religion. Please join me in welcoming her. Dear Jim Grant, uh, dear Marcus Banks, colleagues and friends, uh, ladies and gentlemen, in the early 21st century, religion appears to be far more prominent and uh, a far more prominent and resilient phenomenon than envisioned by theorists who understand modernity in terms of increasing rationalization and secularization. One salient trend that captured my attention over the past years 
no doubt partly triggered by my research on tentacosis uh, in Ghana, uh, with their market religious expressivity, is a strong emphasis placed on religion as an extraordinary experience, mobilizing the body, tuning the senses, and generating emotions. Under the aegis of neoliberalization, there is a trend playing out in various ways across the globe to mobilize the personal body as an index of an incontestable real. In the spheres of religion, politics, popular culture and advertisements, the body is framed as a solid ground of existence and a potential harbinger of the sublime, prone to experience spectacular wow effects. Terms like awe, awesome and sublime, once part of the language games of religious studies and philosophy, have become colloquial expressions that pinpoint a remarkable entanglement of banalization and sacralization and conjuring um, of uh, a sacred surplus. Current scholarship in the social sciences and humanities at large, and the study of religion in particular, engages in recuperating for social theory the eminent importance of the body and thus of senses and emotions in the actual making of life worlds. Undertaken from various angles, a great deal of work appraises the concreteness and tangibility of culture and society, taking some distance from the earlier so-called linguistic turn with its critical deconstruction of essentialized identities with regard to the nation, ethnicity, race, and gender. The point is now to emphasize the tangible presence of constructions in the literal sense. The body and aesthetics on the one hand, and all sorts of artifacts and materials on the other, have become prime sites of scholarly inquiry in the context of appraising materiality. And in my own work over the, over the past years, I stress the importance of a material approach to religion, calling attention to the nexus of bodies and the material world, as well as the arousal of sensations in dynamics of religious world-making. The criticism of dominant social theories abstracting the social from the body, emotions, and the material world not only brings forth new approaches and concepts. Questioning the established canons of intellectual history also invites us to hold the work of barely remembered fringe figures against the light once again. And Robert Ranoff Merritt is such a figure. I feel deeply honored by your invitation to deliver the memorial lecture in his name. And as some of you may know, Merritt has been a source of inspiration for developing my notion of sensational form about which I will say more later on. Preparing this lecture offered a welcome occasion to once again engage with his work in the context of broader past and present debates about the generation of religious emotions and religious experience. Characterizing Merritt as surely one of the most underestimated figures in the history of modern British anthropology, George Stocking noted his role as a mediator between French and British scholarship who introduced Durkheim's work to anthropologists and scholars of religion, including Jane Harrison in Britain. In the early 20th century, Merritt was a much-discussed scholar, but interest in his work waned uh, after the First World War. Starting as early as the 1950s, Merritt's oeuvre has usually been seen as old-fashioned. At least in anthropology, few scholars show a serious interest in his writings. He is taken to be a marginal figure, the successor of E.B. Tyler and predecessor of Radcliffe Brown, with whom social anthropology really took off here in Oxford. 
In a famous quote, Evans Pritchard pinned him down as a genial and ebullient classical philosopher who said things that were amusing. He saw merit as a typical armchair scholar who thrived in the Oxford common room. In a more sympathetic tone, Raymond first started that Merritt, whose contributions seem to be somewhat undervalued nowadays, had a scholarly and ingenious mind, though rather unfocused and overgiven to imagery. Sure, Merritt did not embody what later became typical for British social anthropology. He did not come up with the idea of doing fieldwork, and perhaps still more importantly, he stressed the relevance of social psychology, which has been some kind of nuisance for many social anthropologists. And yet, in the context of current debates, Merritt's approach to religion as an organic complex of thought, emotion, and behavior, as he put it, and his concept of awe gain renewed timeliness, as I will try to show in this lecture. Trained as an anthropologist and working on religion in Africa, I have recently accepted, uh, accepted a chair in religious studies at Utrecht University. This prompted me to think about the future of the study of religion by critically engaging past trajectories and past dependencies. Finding myself between anthropology and religious studies, I feel a remote affinity with a figure like Merritt. Trained in law, philosophy, and classical studies, and involved in archaeology and folklore, he operated in a diffuse field in which neither anthropology nor religious studies had yet crystallized into the disciplines we know today. Positioned in the midst of big debates about the nature of modern society and witnessing the birth of the modern social sciences, Merritt is a much more interesting thinker than his marginal position in the current disciplinary canon of anthropology may suggest. And with this lecture, I would like to remember his ideas about religion, paying special attention to his notion of awe and their reception by scholars of religion. My point is not to engage with Merritt as a timeless classic whose work can be directly transposed into the here and now. I want to argue that an archaeological engagement, as it were, with some of his ideas will throw present debates into relief and indicate possibilities enshrined in his work that could have been developed but were not. And if they had been, our current debates might play out differently. So I will think with, about, against, and beyond merit from the standpoint of current issues and inquiries, as sketched above, and also on the basis of my own work. In so doing, my main concern is to develop a better conceptual and methodological grasp of the surplus, call it our awe or wow effect, that is generated in the interplay between the material world and bodily sensations, and explore its role in the politics and aesthetics of religious world-making. This lecture is in fact based on a longer text that I wrote in preparation of this special event that turned out to be far too long to be read entirely. And here I would like to uh, firstly sketch Merritt's approach to religion and the role of concepts. Secondly, I will highlight the performative potential of his notion of awe. And thirdly, call for a, a rehabilitation of the notion of form, which is, I will argue, central to the production of a sacred surplus. Merritt's impact in religious studies has been different than in anthropology, even though at present he is not much referred to in these circles either. The German religious studies scholar Hans Kippenberg, in his seminal work, The Entdeckung der Religionsgeschichte, credits Merritt with, with having brought about a major transition in the study of religion. He argues that Merritt articulated a new modern concept of religion 
understood as an, and I quote him here, amorphous experience of power. As is, as is well known, Merritt's rise to fame began with his lecture, written in a rush and with guts, delivered for the annual meeting of the British Anthropological Society in 1899, in which he presented his bold pre-animism thesis. Navigating between the predominant positions taken in debates about religion, Merritt proposed a third position. We must, I think, in any case admit the fact that in response to, or at, an, or, or at any rate in connection with the emotions of awe, wonder, and the like, there arises in the region of human thought a powerful impulse to objectify and even personify the mysterious or supernatural something felt. At first sight, it might appear that the central point of Merritt's critique of Tyler's evolutionary scheme was to claim the existence of a stage prior to animism, thereby still remaining within the confines of evolutionary thinking. However, as Kippenberg stresses, Merritt's major concern was to find a, a common human core with regard to religion. In a way, Merritt was caught in between a waning evolutionist and a yet-to-be-developed general perspective on religion. While he still responded to Tyler in the framework of evolutionism, his own concern was not to speculate about the origins of religion. His interest, rather, was to develop a practical approach, a formula, as he put it, that could serve as a memoria technica, to analyze from a comparative perspective the diversity of religions in so-called savage and modern societies. He was wary about venturing a clear-cut definition of religion and formulating a narrow conceptual apparatus. Challenging the view of survivals as traces of an outdated religion that had been superseded by rational understanding, he insisted that religion was rooted in an elemental mood that evolved around the notion of awe. He developed his modern theory of religion, as Kippenberg sketches vividly, in the midst of an overall intellectual crisis at the turn of the 19th century. Doubts were raised about the capacity of historicism and evolutionism to unveil a progressive trajectory based on a set pattern of natural rules that underpinned rightful moral behavior and that gave a sense of purpose and continuity. The study of culture, and of religion in particular, was increasingly understood as a promising field for systematizing possible modes of making sense in a modern world in which meaning was no longer given. Of course, one of the grand themes in Weber's Protestant ethics. Especially in Germany, the hotbed of idealism, romanticism, and a deep fascination with classical antiquity, the question of making sense in and about modern society loomed large. As Kippenberg points out, Merritt's concept of religion was attractive for scholars and the larger public because it offered an understanding of the history of religion in accordance with uh, which the study of the past would unveil a common core that was still supposed to be valid in the present. Merritt and those inspired by his work laid the ground for a modern, systematic and comparative study of religion, of course, with its own shortcomings and pitfalls. Merritt's ideas were marginalized by the canonization of social anthropology as a discipline in which the structural functionalist paradigm gained provenance. Qualifying Merritt as passé, I would like to argue, is not simply a statement about his scholarship as such. It is above all a symptom of a particular production of knowledge about religion, with its specific dynamics of in and exclusion, of remembering and forgetting. 
the study of religion is in dire need of being reconceptualized. So at this particular point in time, I find it productive to re-evaluate earlier alternative approaches to religion, such as the one proposed by Merritt. I hasten to add that I do not promote an uncritical appraisal. Of course, the fundamental criticisms of the modern study of religion as being theoretically and normatively indebted to Western epistemologies and hence in need of being decentered from a post-colonial perspective also apply to Merritt's work. As David Chittister pointed out in his new book, Empire of Religion, which addresses how comparative religion is rooted in colonial power structures, Merritt was a typical exponent of knowledge production under the aegis of imperial theory. Like his peers, he was insensitive to what Chedesta identifies as the tripartite levels of mediation through which terms and notions traveled, from indigenous interlocutors to missionaries to scholars becoming more and more alienated from their original meanings and modes of use and increasingly employed as neutral concepts. In order to de- and recenter the study of religion today, it is necessary to trace generalizing scholarly concepts, be they belief, ritual, fetish, or mana and taboo, back to the context and politics of their use in uh, frontier zones of Western outreach. It seems to me that the heightened sensitivity to the distortions brought about by scholarly concepts contributed to the current trend in the anthropology of religion to study religious traditions in their own right and from within. Taking religion seriously is a phrase often heard. It has also become the motto of what is called the ontological term. By contrast, I would characterize my stance in studying religion and culture at large as still epistemological. More precisely, I find the opposition between ontology and epistemology as championed by those within the term quite misleading. The problem is that they posit the existence of a real world, the ontological, a term that, strictly speaking, refers to statements about being, not being per se, that is held to stand apart from more or less elaborate theories or knowledge about it, the epistemological realm. However, I find it more productive to assume that in our relation to the world, that, that our relation to the world is always and necessarily mediated, and that it is through mediation that what appears real is produced. Modes of producing and using knowledge and representation at large are part of the work of mediation that is at the core of the dynamics of world making. The crux of the problem is the failure of the new ontologists to fully acknowledge that knowledge is generated through sensation and embedded in people and things, ranging from the level of common sense to systematic knowledge production, as happens, for instance, in academia. As a scholar in anthropology and religious studies, I seek to understand how the making and use of knowledge on various intersecting levels is ingrained with the dynamics of world making. Tying into local concepts and theories, however, does not exclude but may even require the use of more distant scholarly concepts. So to cut uh, short a complicated issue in the philosophy of knowledge, a scholarly concept is neither fully congruent with nor totally independent from the phenomenon to which it refers, but instead is part of a method or approach intended to achieve insight into the phenomenon. A concept is both distant from and an indispensable mediator of things in the world. For me, the value of a scholarly concept 
depends on its sensitizing capacity. That is the extent to which it allows us to unlock and throw light on not so obvious aspects of a world of lived experience, looking deep, and to allow for comparison, looking across. I use the term concept in the German sense of Begriff, from Begreifen, through which complex phenomena can literally be grasped or captured. Hence, how to capture the wow is first of all to ask about suitable concepts and methods that offer ways towards deep understanding and fresh ethnographic insights, as well as allow for conveying the complexities involved in cross-cultural translation and conversation among scholars. Based on an admittedly sympathetic reading, I would like to highlight that, uh, in addressing that question, Merritt's work contains important ideas. They are compelling elements of an archaeology of knowledge production that should be laid bare rather than being forgotten, because they are helpful to develop concepts and methods for the study of religion today. In the paper on which this lecture is based, I go into Merritt's view of emotions as an integrated part of religion his plea to combine psychology and sociology, his emphasis on religious acts, and his philosophy of knowledge. Here I will briefly address only the latter. In his view, any of the disciplines involved in the study of religion produces its own abstractions and figments. And with his typical wit and eloquence, he remarked that it is notorious that in science one is apt to hug one's pet abstraction so devotedly that one's fool's paradise comes in the end to be mistaken for the real world. He favored the combination of sociology and psychology because they could, as it were, deconstruct each other's figments and abstractions, and in so doing, provide a multi-perspectival picture of the intersection of individual and society, thinking and feeling, ideas and practices. In the light of Bruno Latour's critique of Durkheimian sociology as abstracting the social from actual actors and practices in the material world, Merit appears more nuanced and less prone to reify the social and attribute an ontological primacy to it than Durkheim. Situating Merit's work in the archaeology of knowledge about religion provides a more three-dimensional view for contemporary debates. Reading him in this way brings into the picture aspects of, it work, aspects of his work that reverberate strongly with current attempts in social theory at large and the study of religion in particular to surpass an approach to the social as an abstraction dissociated from the material world of lived experience and to recuperate emotions for social analysis. His integrated approach to religion as comprising ideas, emotions and practices offers an important corrective and alternative to the intellectualist understanding of religion that became a dominant strand not only in anthropology and, albeit to a lesser extent, religious studies, but also in mainstream approaches to modernity in terms of disenchantment, rationalization, and secularization. Against this backdrop, his notion of awe in particular has great potential, as I hope to explain in the next section. Merritt's work in general, and his notion of awe in particular, were still received by scholars of religion, especially in Germany and also in the Netherlands, when British social anthropology had long left Merritt behind. In his famous book, Das Heilige, the Protestant systematic theologian and scholar of religious studies, Rudolf Otto, posited an understanding of the numinous as mysterium tremendum et fascinans, the holy as a mysterious force, 
that was both terrifying and gripping, invoking sensations of fear and awe. Disagreeing with the approaches developed in the rising sociology and history of religion that regarded religion as an object of study and offered a contextual analysis of its function and social economic aspects, Otto strove to write about religion from what he took to be within. The phenomenology of religion, to whose development he cont contributed, remained a gui guiding paradigm in religious studies, especially in Germany, as well as in the Netherlands and the United States, around Eliade and Smart, until it was subjected to fundamental critique and breakdown in the 1970s and 80s. As a relative newcomer to religious studies, I note that the phenomenology of religion and the work of Otto in particular nowadays is like a red rag for a bull. Certainly in academic configurations in which scholars in religious studies need to stress their distinction from theologians, the former seem to regard it as crucial for their identity to refute any suspicion of working from a believer's perspective. These responses made me realize that strands of religious studies produce knowledge on premises quite different from those I have been familiar with in the anthropology of religion. So to put it somewhat crudely, I see the following pattern. While current anthropologists may more or less easily go along with believers' perspectives and perhaps even embrace the ontological term, scholars in religious studies seem to be more inclined to take some distance from the religious ideas and practices they study and to place a high value on the use of concepts for systematic knowledge production. And this yields different epistemologies, modes of analysis, and writing styles. Situated in between, I seek to find a kind of balance for my own work, and my interest in merit is also part of this endeavor. But now back to Otto and merit. Invoking the English notion of awe, Otto stated in the second edition of his magnum opus that merit comes within a hair's breadth of the matter. The only thing he missed in Merritt's position was a clear differentiation between religious and other feelings. However, as many scholars remarked, Otto distorted Merritt's ideas about awe. While for Otto, the holy was a power sui generis that made itself felt by inducing feelings of awe in human beings, and indeed expressed by the proverbial goosebumps, Merritt's approach does not presuppose a transcendental force that operates as a generator of such feelings. The problem with Otto's approach for the study of religion is that the idea of complete transcendence is grounded in a metaphysical assumption that not only eludes scholarly research, but also denies the role of human practices in accessing the luminous. Indeed, as pointed out by uh, E.O. James in his 1958 merit lecture, the crux of the problem with Otto's approach, at least from a social cultural perspective, was that it failed to bring to the fore the centrality of human acts in developing the means to access, and by the same token to imagine, a force perceived as transcendental. And here again, the work of merit offers intriguing incentives. Dismissing the phenomenology of religion as being too close to Protestant belief statements and perhaps being too religionsnah in an overall sense does not require rejecting merit in the slipstream of this critique. In distinction to Otto, who based his theory of religion on the existence of a transcendental force, Merritt took as a starting point the human being who reaches out to such a force from his or her position in the immanent, in the here and now. And for the study of religion, this is a crucial difference. As noted, 
For Merritt, religion was grounded in an emotional thrill that arose in moments of crisis at the point where thought breaks down. And he speculated that such points were at the origin of religion. However, in my view, the thrust of his approach was to study religion from the other end, as already institutionalized and in action. By virtue of being objectified or personified, experiences of emotional thrill in relation to the mysterious or supernatural something felt were transmitted and repeatable. Hence, uh, he insisted that we must go on, however, to consider religion sociologically. It involves, uh, it, it has standardized a matter. It involves a routine, a ritual. Also, it involves some sort of conventional doctrine, which is, as it were, the inner side of the ritual, its lining. What I find important in this statement is the idea that religion, once established, offered a standardized method that allowed for repeated experiences of awe. These experiences may, of course, be unique and special for individuals, but are structured and standardized nonetheless. The natural phenomena, as well as the human-made artifacts around which such methods evolved, were set apart, taboo, and attributed with power, mana. With Martin Riesebrot, I agree that Merritt's position entails the possibility of an, as it were, artificial, in the sense of human-made, invocation of awe through certain authorized methods or procedures that lend themselves to repetition. An example is the mysterious sound of the bull roarer used by the aboriginals that, as Merritt put it, furnishes the ceremony with a background of awe. Interestingly, Merritt analyzed the initiation ritual during which the bull roarer uh, was used by pointing at the political repercussions of its powerful sound. He pictured the young men lying on the ground and listening to the sound through which he imagined there looms up before their minds the figure of the ultimate lawgiver, while, whilst this unearthly voice becomes for them the voice of the law. The point here is that Merritt described the bull roarer as a wonder-working object that effects in the listeners a sense of the presence of a power that is both supernatural and political. Here we encounter what for me is the most compelling aspect of Merritt's work, a view of awe as being affected through an authorized procedure that involves particular objects, spaces, and sensing, as well as sense-making bodies, in the context of specific power structures. Awe here is understood as a powerful emotion produced and reproduced through specific authorized methods. In the service of political power, awe is invoked to impress and amaze, sustaining that power with an aura that elevates it beyond the ordinary and makes it be perceived as sublime. Merritt's notion of awe resonates with Durkheim's notion of effervescence, the sublime feeling that erupts when taking part in a ritual performance, yielding in participants a sense of society as a pre-existing transcendent power. But Merritt's notion allows for a much more fine-tuned operationalization that helps us grasp the process of the actual production of awe. Since the thrust of Merritt's approach is performative, it allows for a micro-analysis of the coming into being of a sacred surface. More about this in part three. To conclude this part, Merritt neither attributed awe to a transcendental force, be it the luminous, as for Otto, or an abstract social sublime, as for Durkheim, nor reduced it to a pure illusion that has no real existence and hence has to be dismantled by critical research, as for logical positivists. In so doing, 
he articulated an approach to awe that still stands in the aftermath of the criticism that the phenomenology of religion assigned primary existence to the numinous. Analyzing the evocation of awe from the perspective of human beings who are part of a religious group or tradition, Merritt ventured a truly sociological approach. The link he suggests between awe and political power urges us to take into account both the political dimension of religion and how the political tap taps into techniques of invoking awe that at first sight may seem merely religious. In this sense, awe may fruitfully be analyzed as part of a technique of organizing and hence binding as well as governing people in various domains by getting them hooked on a wonder-working device, mass-mediated uh, formats, of course, included. It may not come as a surprise that his ideas about the production of awe fit in well with my understanding of religion as a practice of mediation between humans and the professed invisible beyond. For me, religion refers to particular authorized and transmitted sets of practices and ideas aimed at going beyond the ordinary, surpassing or transcending a limit, or gesturing towards, as my colleague Matthijs van der Poort put it poignantly, the rest of what is. Religion is the domain par excellence that offers standardized procedures to generate in religious practitioners over and over again a sense of wonder and amazement, the production of a sacred surplus. I think about this production in terms of a fabric fabrication in the sense of Bruno Latour, coining the notion of the factish, a human-made and yet sublime thing, as a substitute for the problematic notion of the fetish, his point is to show that in all our activities, what we fabricate goes beyond us. I read this and his related statement that we help to fabricate the beings in which we believe as a persuasive provocation to look at religion as an assemblage of people, objects, and practices that generates a sense of belief and possibly awe in the process of operation. At stake here is an approach to religion that neither takes for granted the existence of a god or transcendental force, nor unmasks it as an illusion, but instead undertakes a close study of the standardized methods that yield the fabrication of some kind of excess. And this is the third and uh, last uh, part of uh, this lecture. I bumped into the work of Merritt uh, back in 2006, when I struggled to develop an approach to religious sensations as socially constituted as well as personal experiences that encompass thinking and feeling. My keen interest in this topic arose through my research on Pentecostals in Ghana, where I encountered a powerful orchestration of shared sensations, producing a thick emotional profile. This is captured masterfully by photographer Andrew Eusebio, who coll collaborated with Annalisa Butici, with whom I worked in the context of her Marie Curie Fellowship on Pentecostal Aesthetics. Initially, I was quite at a loss to find suitable concepts to productively analyze what was going on in these settings, especially to account for the evocation of thrilling emotions and the profuse use of body techniques without falling into the pitfall of an individualizing and depoliticizing approach. I found work in the framework of the classical phenomenology of religion unsuitable because it took the existence of the transcendental as a starting point. Approaches to religious experience, for instance those inspired by William James, were of limited use because they tended to take individual feelings as authentic expressions 
generated from within and to downplay institutional structures that ensured repeatability and routine as secondary. By contrast, I sought to analyze the genesis of sensations and the feelings and ideas involved within particular religious aesthetic formations. Merritt's ideas about awe as a product of a standardized religious method formed a prime source of inspiration for me in developing the concept of sensational form. Before summarizing what this concept entails, let me say something about the notion of form in the study of religion. In the study of religion, form is usually taken as secondary to meaning, which is identified uh, with the form's content. I take this as a system of a modern and perhaps even reformed Protestant view of meaning that distinguishes between, in principle, arbitrary carriers or vehicles that operate as mere outer forms on the one hand and the substance conveyed by them on the other. And in schemes of religious evolution, from primitive to modern, form is thought to be predominant in the lower stages, while in the higher ones, form is dispensable and content reigns supreme. Max Weber famously claimed that salvation uh, religions have um, devalued form as contingent, as something creaturely and distracting from meaning. Merrick, too, shared the common view of primitive culture as still being bound to form and took modern civilizations as able to dispense with it, albeit to some degree, stating that of all human activities, religion was, as he put it, most subservient to form, ritual being religion's second nature, he left some room for form also in modern religion. Still, the notion of form is not elaborated in Merritt's work. In my work over the past years, I pleaded for a rehabilitation of form in the study of religion. Form may be more or less marked in the experience of religious believers, but in any case, it is indispensable if shared sensations are to arise. To avoid misunderstandings, let me stress that I do not use form in opposition to content, shaping what is indeterminate and, yet, and not yet differentiated into a gestalt. Form is a necessary condition for the articulation and indeed formation of content and meaning. My understanding of form resonates with Ernst Cassirer's notion of symbolic form, which refers to an irreducible entanglement of a sign and its meaning. Note that Cassirer did not use the term symbol in the usual current sense in which it is a vehicle of meaning. Symbolic forms stand between us and the things, but in so doing, they do not only describe negatively the distance between us and the things, they also provide the only possible adequate mediation and the medium through which any mental being becomes graspable and understandable. The objective material world not being assess accessible as such, symbolic forms operate as its indispensable mediators, bringing into being worlds of lived experience. Thus, Cassirer proposed a theory of mediation in which symbolic forms take a constitutive part in practices of world-making. Note that this stands in marked contrast to conceptualizations of science that emphasize their alienating dimension, for instance, in theories that assume the primacy and immediacy of experience, sensation, and affect, or also in the Lacanian notion of the symbolic. This stance towards form as a constructive mediator is the background of my concept of sensational form in my approach to religion. I developed this concept as a heuristic, sensitizing research instrument to grasp the genesis and working of religious sensations. 
referring to a configuration of religious media, acts, imaginations, and sensations in the context of a particular religious tradition or group, a sensational form provides an authorized procedure to experience in a structured manner a movement towards a limit that evokes a sense of there being something more. Authorized and authenticated as harbingers of what lies beyond, sensational forms have the double aspect of streamlining or shaping religious mediation and of achieving certain effects by being performed. Thus, sensational forms are formats in that they direct those who partake in them how to proceed and induce performance in that they effect or make present what they mediate. In short, sensational forms are prone to effect a sacred surplus in a more or less powerful, persuasive manner for those involved. Sensational forms include body techniques that become embodied in the habitus. They play a key role in implementing a particular religious aesthetics. I understand aesthetics in the sense of isosis as a sensory engagement with the world that synthesizes sensation and sense-making, tunes the senses, and structures perception in a specific and selective manner, directing attention in a particular way. Examples of what I have in mind encompass Loyola's spiritual exercises, the ethics of listening to Islamic sermons, which require, as Hirschkin put it, a pious ear, forms of what David Morgan called visual piety in pictorial devotion, engaging in glossolalia and other forms of sacred speech, or consuming holy food, and many more examples could be raised. What cuts, cuts across these different examples is the shaping and framing of the body and the senses as harbingers and as an index of the divine. Let me briefly turn to my research in Ghana to spotlight how the notion of sensational form may fruitfully be used to explore in detail the production of surplus. Together with Roda Wutz, I examined how the image of the sacred heart of Jesus is employed and understood by beholders to make tangible the realm of the spiritual that is present in what is called the physical and yet inaccessible to ordinary sensory perception. As a sens sensational form that mediates the power of Jesus, many see the picture as a wonder-working object with a powerful gaze, able to act to the benefit of its beholders in times of danger. Reminiscent of the logic of traditional power objects, the picture still signals the superiority of Christianity over heathendom. It epitomizes the coming into being of a Christian world that partly encompasses, but at the same time fiercely attacks the worship of indigenous spirits. Many of the video movies that were at the center of my research over the past years lay bare how this picture is imagined to operate spiritually, that is to be effective in ways that are secluded for the naked eye. Tailored to the expectations and viewing habits of a predominantly Christian audience, the many special effects in these movies are skillfully crafted to trigger sensations of awe, wonder, and the like about the power of the Holy Spirit to develop, to deliver people from the proverbial powers of darkness. The movies are made to impress the audiences and get them uh, hooked. I analyze these movies as sensational forms that in turn include prime sensational forms of popular and Pentecostal Christianity as well as of traditional religion. I examined in detail how these movies render visible and audible what remains inaccessible to the ordinary senses, thereby featuring as a kind of techno-spiritual devices that mediate between the physical and the spiritual. 
closely examining assemblages of bodies and objects, including pictures, <coughs> in diverse sensational forms, helped me to grasp the world-making potential of religion and the genesis of awe and amazement in the context of both Pentecostal religiosity and popular culture at large. To conclude this section, inspired by and pushing further Merritt's ideas about awe, I coined the notion of sensational form as a concept that points towards various procedures or methods through which sensations of awe or wow effects arise. At least in my view, one of the assets of this concept is that it calls for detailed attention to the micro-practices of religious fabrication and hence to the production of a surplus whose emergence needs neither to be attributed to a transcendental force to a generous nor to be deconstructed as a mere illusion. Instead, it focuses on what I regard as human beings' quite remarkable capacity to engage in co-producing particular awesome effects that they do not reduce to their own actions per se, but experience as marvelous. This kind of extraordinary fabrication, or the fabrication of ordinary, extraordinariness, can best be grasped by a theoretical approach that acknowledges the capacity of forms to make, destroy, and remake, rather than merely refer, refer to a world. Importantly, such a fabrication is not an innocent apolitical affair. As Merritt's example of the bull roarer reminds us, the evocation of awe and related emotions in the category of the wow often involves a conundrum of supernatural and political power. In this sense, the concept of sensational form calls for a detailed investigation, not only of the genesis of such emotions, but also of their effects in persuading people about the truth and reality of the worlds constituted and sustained by sensational forms. To conclude, debating the transformation rather than disappearance of religion, the study of religion itself is also in need of a transformation that involves looking back so as to be able to develop a vision for the future. I hope that my alternative reading of merit has been able to convey why his modern approach to religion and his notion of awe may still or again be a valuable resource for current and future research in the beginning of the 21st century. At the core of his notion, understood as referring to a powerful emotion generated through a standardized method, is the recognition of the human capacity of being impressed by and impress each other. This is central to shaping and sustaining power relations. Merritt's view of awe as being affected through a set of practices that are in principle observable and researchable inspired me to launch the notion of sensational form, which I understand as a scholarly concept for exploring ways of producing an excessive surplus. In our contemporary world, the craving for deep experiences that involve some kind of wow and indeed for experiencing life has generated a veritable market for the production of wonder-working devices, bodily techniques and performances that are made to impress by our strong sensations and feelings. Clearly, this is not confined to the sphere of religion in the common institutional sense, but also pertains to the realm of advertisements, the arts and politics, with strong populist and charismatic leaders entering the scene. All over, there seems to be a constant demand for emotional thrill. All kinds of sensational forms come up that promise some kind of kick. If Walter Benjamin still thought that the rise of technologies of mass reproduction would imply the loss of aura and hence cultural forms loss of capacity to instill a sense of awe in their beholders, 
it is by now clear that aura is resuscitated in ever new forms with their own dynamics and procedures of evoking awe. This became uncannily clear to Benjamin, who witnessed the aestheticization of politics as it played out in national socialist performances that were designed to instill a sense of awe. Also in our time, awe is often deployed in political aesthetics of persuasion, at times even literally, as in the US military doctrine of shock and awe. It is of utmost importance for scholars to undertake a cool analysis of such processes that is able to capture the making of the wow rather than merely deconstructing it as nothing but an illusion based on some kind of trick. Analyzing awe is not an issue of metaphysics, but a means to understand the microphysics of power. Social theory in general, and the study of religion in particular, is well advised to develop new synthesizing and sensitizing concepts that transcend outmoded dualisms of intellect and emotion, thinking and feeling, sense and senses, as well as between the social and the individual, so as to be able to understand the politics and aesthetics of religious world-making with its salient wow effects in our time. Thank you for your attention.